civil war is something I've, we've seen countries fall apart. I remember Yemen. I was in Saudi when Yemen fell apart. Syria fell apart. And it's like, if we think that can't happen to us, you're crazy. Welcome to Black Diplomats, a foreign policy podcast that focuses on national security at home and abroad. I'm your host, Terrell Stark, and with us to talk about what it means to stamp out foreign and domestic threats is Joanne Cook, who spent 17 years in the national security space, including 13 years in the CIA. He has spent time in the Middle East and North Africa, as well as worked in the CIA Counterterrorism Center helping to disrupt terror plots against America. Brother, how you doing, man? I'm good, man. I think in the, in the era of Corona, we, we all trying to be, live longer, be smarter. <laughs> I, I know that's right, man. Listen, so you left the national security space in 2016, and that was before, you know, Trump was inaugurating, what have you. So, before we even get into your career and just talking about you directly, just as a former CIA operative, tell me, how are you looking at this current drama with the Trump administration refusing to work with Biden's transition team as somebody who focused this career on national security at the CIA? I think to put it bluntly, being from Texas, uh, Dallas area, Oak Cliff, I would say this is nutty as squirrel shit. And we, we got ourselves a serious situation, but Trump is who he is. I, I think one of, one of the failures is everybody else to understand just he's going to be who he is and he doesn't care. So how do you respond? You know, how does the Biden administration, I mean, they're, they haven't raised money for the transition because there's no official transition dollars coming. So they just put up, I think, on Twitter, you know, hey, you know, not a GoFundMe or whatever, Secure Act Blue or whatever it is, to get money. Because you've got somebody who's like, F all y'all, I'll leave when I decide I'll leave. You know, and that's just, but that's what America elected. We put them in there. Not all of us, but some of us did. <laughs> then some of us voted for him again, you know, at a 70 million, whatever clip it was. So it's it's almost... It's it's fascinating. It's maddening. It's insane to see America be as unstable as we've called other countries. <laughs> I mean, it's ironic. You know, you know they say the institutions will prevail. We'll be okay. We'll be all right. You sure? I mean, <laughs> you know, Ground Truth argues, and you know, as a Ground Truth reporter. Uh, I remember reading your stuff, you know, you're going around the country. You're like, I don't know if this is going to be a blowout. And people were on your case. Oh, oh yeah, brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I'm curious as to how you would be looking at this from abroad, because in addition to, you know, your work that we'll get into uh, uh, of, of, of being based in the Middle East and, and, and North Africa, you have to have an idea of how, you know, America's adversaries within, within your work view America. And so what type, so if, if this was happening in another country, let's say Iraq or wherever you were stationed, what type of assessment would you give? I would wonder whether we'll have to evacuate our personnel. You know, you start wondering, is America going to be a danger to us? 
you know, you start, and these are kind of more the dark side of it, but we would talk to every asset we have, every official we had to really get a true sense of what the real state of play, because like, for example, you have an election, looks like he's won electoral, co- I mean, you know, President, uh, President-elect President Biden has won, quote unquote. But wow, there were a whole lot of people voting for Trump <laughs> and they're not going anywhere. <laughs> What's that going to mean for the future? Does that mean, and if Georgia, the Senate, if, uh, you know, Stacey Abrams and her crew, who I knew from back in the day when I was in Atlanta, uh, like back in 91, 92, if they don't win Georgia and we don't win, you know, Democrats don't win the Senate, what's going to happen? You know, are you going to have such a contested government that, you know, pr- you know, who will be then President Biden, will he be, have a situation like Jimmy Carter, where he has a r- rule by decrease, rule by executive order, get things done? Or, I mean, will it just be chaos? You know, I mean, what, what wholesale type drama are we going to continue to have? Because, I mean, when you see these press conferences and you see people can call it theater all they want to, that's what people think America is now. They're like, what the hell's wrong with you guys? We expected, they expected us to be better. And that was always the thing in my career. I would tell people, you know, I have assets and others I'm working with, and I would say, you know, America, we do some things good, but we're, we ain't always right, and we're not always perfect. I said, take this off the pedestal. Because if you put us on this pedestal, you're going to be disappointed. And then me, you might be fighting. <laughs> well, we shouldn't even have to do that. So let's just, let's keep it, you know, America's not your mama. If this is any other country, I think we'd be doing sit reps, maybe three situation reports three or four times a day. Um, the National Security Council would be up, up our ass consistently. <laughs> what are you doing? What's happening? What are they going to do? Is, is the dictator going to leave? Is the military going to take over? You know, <laughs> what, what's our counterparts going to do? What's state security going to do? I mean, you know, what's the vice president? Okay, who are the factions? You know, what, what's going to happen? I mean, it would be, it'd be like the Super Bowl of, you know, of drama. And, you know, and that's, what, I mean, that's where we are in America. You know, we hope it works out. Institutionalists tell you it's going to work out. And I say to them sometimes, like, I mean, you hope. Well, we thought re- reconstruction was going to work out better than it did, but it did. <laughs> you know, we just, so how is it that a black man from Texas becomes a spy? Okay, I'll tell you how it happened. So didn't really know what I wanted to do and as far as a career. So I was a criminal justice major, right? So, you know, after about 95, I was just at a loss. I was like, I don't want to be the police. Uh, what the hell am I going to do? And I said, you know what? Let me stop school all together and I did. We come around about two years later, circa 1997, I was uh, working uh, for ADT Security Services, just like a customer service type job. Because uh, at that time I moved to Jacksonville. Um, my mom was down there, so I went down there to help her out. And a guy saw me reading Foreign Affairs uh, Journal, the Foreign Affairs Journal. And he said, man, you just like reading that on your own? And I, he said, are you in school? I said, no. And he was like, when you were in school, what did you study? I said, well, I studied criminal justice. He said, but I didn't want to be a cop. Or I didn't want to do that. You know, I didn't want to go down that path of law enforcement. And he said to me, he said, dude, why don't you, like, study that? You like it. Go back to school, study that, and I think you'll be good at it. Well, that's what I did. <laughs> so, so 
I, uh, you know, that light hits you. Somebody tells you, you know, it's like, oh, you should go back to school. And one of the things that I went back to school to study was international affairs and terrorism. Because circa 97, I started watching, I think, John Miller, a journalist. He started doing these interviews with Bin Laden. And I'm sitting there watching, you know, Osama Bin Laden, you know, Saudi national, you know, talking about how he's going to kick the West and yada, yada, yada. You got a picture of Africa in the background. I'm looking at it, and I was like, yeah, I think this guy's serious. I think this is going to be a problem. <laughs> well, you know, August, was it uh, the first week of August or whatever in uh, 1998, you know, he blew up the embassies in Nairobi and, and Dar, Dar es Salaam, and, you know, Nairobi, Kenya, um, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. And it was like, I was like, well, this is going to be a problem in the future. And the thing that I think struck me and that caused me to go that path to, like you say, how do you become a spy? Well, for me, it was more of, I wanted to stop terrorists. And I knew there was something inside of CIA. I think I read Ronald Kessler's book uh, about this counterterrorism center. And I was like, well, I can either be a professor or I can actually do something other than teach. And so I made my way through the academic circle to try to get in the CTC, join the agency. What's CTC, by the way? What's CTC? CTC is a counterterrorism center, which is part, it's kind of a multidisciplinary center that was established, like, I don't know, it was late in the mid 80s or something to deal with the terrorism problem. Now, of course, post 9-11, it was super empowered, not as empowered as much before 9-11. Uh, but, I mean, they did work and everything, but they, you know, you didn't have funding. You didn't have that super mandate that the swell of the government when you have a homeland attack. So so prior to 9-11 and everything, I'm back in school, went to UNC, University of North Carolina, Greensboro, and I'm finishing up. And at that point, I'm like, okay, let me go ahead and put my application in, which I did by mail, because at that time, this was before 9-11, a little bit, a little bit before. You know, you could do that. I said, you know, I'm going to roll the dice and see what happens. Well, you know, 9-11 happens. And, okay, here's, your, here's, here's, here's event number two. You know, the first was, you know, okay, they're killing a bunch of Africans to get to those Americans. And now they hit New York. <laughs> they weren't playing. It wasn't a joke. And he was serious. I mean, you know, so it was like, okay, it's in process. And I'm living my life like, okay, I think I'm going to go to Georgetown because they just hadn't called me. But then they finally called me and they were like, they said, oh, this is a clandestine service trainee program, which is how you become an ops officer. Regular folks call it a spy, but actually we handle the spies. And then October, 2003, the month of my birth, you know, I'm sitting up, I'm walking across that seal, you know, like in the movies. And I'm like, shoot, wait a minute. I'm like, whoa, I'm in there. And, you know, I meet people at our orientation. I'm like, holy crap, I'm here. And next thing I know, I'm working CT. CT issues in Iraq. We've invaded. It's October. Now the insurgency is starting. The drama starts. Now, I realize the Iraq war. Let's be real. We didn't go in there. Saddam didn't have what we thought he had. That was a F up. That was a screw up. And that caused a hell of a lot of bad consequences. But as you know, when you're in the game, you're in the game. And 
How did you feel? Did you feel conflicted with that? I'll say this. My, my, my parents, mom, you know, father to an extent, granddad, they always told me, you know, a lot of times these politicians are going to screw it up. <laughs> and in spite of that, sometimes you got to see what good you can do. My mission out in Iraq was to stop terrorists who wanted to kill Iraqi civilians. You know, of course, our soldiers were trying to protect, but we have some some straight up gangsters. I mean, that were about just slaughter because they were on. The thing about when you really become a hardcore, um, I'll call it tech fear, which means you can just declare any Muslim an infidel. When you when you have that hardcore belief system, and that's no different than hardcore white supremacists, um, you know, uh, Nazis, etc. You don't care about innocence. <laughs> you want to slaughter. And, and it's almost that, and that rage is a nuclear weapon. And so, in spite of the terrible policy decisions that you saw, even after the invasion, post-invasion, um, you know, reconstruction, firing all the Iraqi armies, you know, the successive mess-ups, you know, the thing you realize, Terrell, a lot of times, we're nothing but clusterfuck response units. We, <laughs> we, we have to come in and fix the shit that sometimes our policymakers make. And it's, it's, it's screwed up, it's wrong. Are you conflicted? Yeah, but then you're like, well, can I do some good? You know, is there, you know, is there something good that can come out of this? Can I give some people some peace? You know, and in Iraq, there were times where I had people, you know, they're like, hey, man, they're hanging people from, they're hanging people from trees in town, town square, because Al-Qaeda takes over town. They want to kill everybody. If you don't agree, you die. There ain't no, there ain't no negotiation. This is straight gangster shit taken to a whole nother level and wrapped in religion, wrapped in disaffection, uh, because at the time, the Iraqi government, see, they had to die. They, <laughs> They, they are from slavery in a sense. They don't know what the hell they're doing. They try to figure it out. You know, so it's like, it's just chaos. And groups like that always take advantage of chaos, uh, inequality, uh, and general madness. So that's what they did. But I had people come to me and all the special forces officers and like, you know, and it was kind of like, these are community men. And in many cases, they were men. And they said, well, we need help. And boy, we helped them. Because and we wanted to help them right. You know, we went after those bad guys, tried to stop them as much as we could. Also hope that on the flip side, State Department, the other institutions would also do their part too. We have this over-exaggerated belief that conventional warfare solely ends wars. And we both know that's false. I mean, we know the military hardware that goes in. I mean, it can make a lot of explosions. Boom, 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 boom. And we saw Donald Rumsfeld. He blew this up a lot. And you saw the media did the, I forgot what it was called, the um, uh, shock and awe, right? And he used these, he, yeah, yeah so, so he used this language and you saw the explosions at the, you know, at, you, know, you know, during these live broadcasts and that symbolism of quote unquote American might meant something to a lot of people reflected strength. I know as somebody who studies security now, 
I saw, oh, this is fucking propaganda, too. Well, yeah, like, absolutely. this shit, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, I mean, my grandfather was born in 1911, died in 2000. And that man just sent me on his knee and tell me all about propaganda. And talk about, you know, and I'm talking about homegrown propaganda. Not no Russians, nobody else. We probably, we do the same. Now, the reality is, you invade a country. I mean, Colin Powell said it. You break it, you buy it. <laughs> you know. And the thing is, State Department matters. If if they're way in the back burner and not at the table as they should be, you're gonna have an issue, <laughs> you know, because governance matters. Uh, USAID matters. Um, private sector, in some cases, if you're you're talking about reconstruction and things like that, some of those entities do matter. But the problem is, and I think even backing it up a little bit, we continue to get in conflicts that we probably shouldn't, and that's a problem in and of itself. So then it becomes a CFRU, clusterfuck response. We invaded- Is that the language that y'all use in, yeah, in yeah, the agency? Yeah, we actually had a term. We call it, we did. That was a term. We had a logo for it, and we called it. <laughs> we were like, okay, they screwed The policy makers screw it up, and then they want us to fix it. We even had a logo. We had a logo and we had it in the office because you know what? Because it's like, let me fix it. You didn't, you didn't finish Afghanistan. Or they all went to Pakistan. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So you had, it was like an unnecessary conflict. And now, okay, how do we fix it? Okay, just dump money at it. See, that's the other thing. You have military might, and then other times, as you can see on the annual cigar report in Afghanistan, I'm looking at, we spent billions and trillions of dollars in these countries also, and it's still kind of a crap because throwing money isn't going to solve the, the issue either. But again, it's like, it's that fruit of a poison tree. You don't me you've messed up bad. You don't want to leave. You don't want to admit it. So it becomes another term, and I, I think we got a patch for this. It becomes an enduring clusterfuck, <laughs> you know, that just doesn't <laughs> Yeah, we got one. It's called Operation Enduring Clusterfuck. Um, and it just goes on. And then you'll have seniors will say, you know, we're turning a corner. Yeah, we're turning another corner. We're, we're turning that corner again. I mean, it's almost like, when's it? You got to go in a square, right? You, you ever got to get out of this? And then you get Trump, and Trump just says, F it, we'll just leave. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And then people are like, no, you can't just do that. Well, you guys been messing around for 19 years. What? <laughs> Come on, guys. I mean, really? I mean, you know, so it's it, it, it's like I, I think there's got to be a hell of a lot more responsibility. Our policymakers and senior officials who continuously put America in these jams, <laughs> you know, and put us in the jail. You're a civilian now, but what ways do you think Americans can better understand these situations because I tried as a journalist, even you know when I travel around the country, but I think the main problem is we make national security about, one, it's about fear and it's scared, you know, your goal is to scare the shit out of people and there's a fundamental lack of knowledge about other people. And so when you don't, we don't know enough, you know, the difference between groups with even within Islam and then also with Iran, we don't, we don't understand the Middle East we don't understand the fact that Iranians are not Arabs, for example, they're right, Persians. Right, right. And so, right, right. So there's a basic 
knowledge level of people that is absent. And when people don't know something, they're afraid of it, especially when in America we have this Christian orthodoxy that's pretty, that that's 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 really embedded in white supremacy that tells people if you're not Christian, then you're an enemy of the state because America is a Christian state. So how much does Americans lack of knowledge play into this and how do you fill that void? Well, that's the thing. I mean, back in, you know, in international relations back in the day, they used to say the attentive public normally only cared about national security issues at a at a normal clip. It was 3% of the public. <laughs> that's 3%. Now, if there was a war or some incident, okay, maybe that goes up to 15. So basically in America, we have these two oceans. We have an education problem. Um, and that's a deficit in terms of understanding the broader world where other countries, they have no choice but to understand the world. You know, I could sit up in Saudi Arabia and my friends are talking about Egyptian politics predicting that Mubarak's gonna go, uh, what's his name, uh, God, Mercy's gonna take over, and then Sisi's gonna come to power. They were better than anybody. <laughs> I mean, they were better than some of the agency animals because they were steeped in the culture and knowledge of their neighbors. You know, for us, maybe we know a little bit about Mexico or Canada, but we're so far away and the conflict is so far away in most cases. Uh, you know, and I'm talking about historically, now we got the internet, we got all types of other things that supposedly should help us educate us better. It, it doesn't though, it, it's, it's not. It doesn't, it doesn't. It, it, it's, it's one of those things where people like me that was in, in, in these institutions, we need to talk more. We need to open up, you, we need to talk to our people more. This is why I'm talking to you. You know, I, I can definitely talk to other podcasts and everything else, you know, veterans type thing. But it's like, shit, I mean, this is a brother. He deal, he works for the root. That's us. <laughs> you know, we got to talk to our people more. And it has to be on, hey, man, if you want to understand about, if you can, for example, I'll have people tell me Obama's drone war. And I'm like, well, he didn't start that. You know, that was President Bush more so as a consequence of not taking certain action. But if you don't like it, you know, it's black people on the intelligence committee you can write to. And they're like, what? And I said, yeah, hold on a second. Val Demings from Orlando, Harry's sister, former police chief. She's on the intel committee. Andre Carson from Indiana, intel committee. There's another sister, uh, Sewell, uh, <clears throat> Terry, Terry Sewell, congresswoman. These are black folks that, you know what? Is it a bad thing to have a, now, with all the other issues, right, that we got going on in this world, and we got plenty, that we take, take some time to carve out an understanding of the broader world, because there are times where that broader world could be a benefit to. When elected officials run for office and they win, these conversations that we're having, they're not equipped to have it because when you're running on domestic policy, there may be times in debates where foreign policy may never come up. For example, in the past two presidential campaigns, I don't recall conversations around the continent of Africa coming up during debates once. I wanted to ask you too about 
your time in Saudi Arabia and also your work with uh, Iran and America has two very different relationships with Iran and Saudi Arabia. And so if you don't mind just giving us a brief, you know, as much as you could say about what you did in those, what your experiences in those two countries and why America has such vastly different uh, relations with those two countries. Well, I never served in Iran because, you know, we haven't had relations there and I, I never was able to step foot in Iran. I was close, close, you know, on the border with the rock, um, my first tour, uh, 2005, actually, you know, I'm ne right next door, literally not far away in Northern Iraq and, uh, Sulaimania. Now, the thing that I'll say about Iran, you know, we've been in this fight, you know, kind of a hot and a cold war with Iran, you know, going back to, you know, the, you know, to the fifties and overthrow and, um, then supporting the Shah, you know, U.S. government support to the Shah, agency support to the Shah, <laughs> you know, everybody's supporting that country. And then, of course, you know, the Ayatollahs took charge. They got, and then they're like, you're gone, took us hostage, then targeted us in places like Lebanon and others. And it's been tit for tat. And I'm going to, you're the great Satan. I want to destroy you. You know, America says we want to kick. I mean, it's just back and forth. And it's just uh, been a continuous point of contention and drama. And you, I mean, I, in my organization, a lot of people view, you know, we had a couple of embassies. I mean, the Beirut embassy blown up on a couple of occasions, killing numerous CIA officers. And many felt that we should pay back, that we never paid Iran back for what they did, okay? And because the thing about international relations that a lot of people don't look at is grudges and blood. <laughs> and but they, you look at the Iranians and they say, well, you overthrew Mossadegh and, you know, and you caused us to be in a dictatorship, which was then replaced by another type of dictatorship. <laughs> you know, you, caught, you changed our destiny. Yeah, we killed some of your people, you changed our destiny. So you get this, this conflict and it's, it's something where, you know, hatred builds up, but then also you have elements of diplomacy that come from time to time. You have after 9-11, everybody was on America's side, quote unquote, even Iranians, if you read public accounts and, and some press reporting, whatever, like, yeah, we want to help you guys. Then of course, Bush makes a speech talking about access of evil. And, Right, it's like okay, f you guys. Right, <laughs> you know what I'm right, right. So, <laughs> you know, so, so you get this, this, this situation where you're not quite at war, but not gonna be. But both some people don't want to be at peace, and then in in the I will call it the foreign policy circles, national security circles as well. But then also you get somebody like you know President Obama who might say. Okay, I'm sick of all this drama that's been going on for years. F this. What can we do to cut a deal? And of course, you had a deal was cut that a lot of people, some agreed, some disagreed. And, you know, and I think in his mind, it was like, why should we allow this drama to continue, continue, continue? And a lot of times, you know, a policymaker may say, you know what, let's bring this somewhat to a close. 
Now, does that mean that Iran's not going to be Iran and not going to target us when they get a chance to? No. Iran's going, I mean, if you've, if you've got an external policy to do certain activities against somebody you view as a foe, you're probably going to continue it. I mean, the Russians didn't stop spying because the USSR dissolved. You know, <laughs> they, they increase. Right. But here's the question. But here's a but here's the question for you, though. So this is what I understand about because I am very, as you know, I'm interested in nuclear nonproliferation policy. And but I'm particular, but I'm particularly interested with you in your work in CIA. Like the way that I look at Iran is one, most military planners with common sense and the one and and and, and people who worked in that region will tell you that any attempt to invade that country would be nightmarish based on this geography, based on the mountainous region, because it's pretty much like inside of a valley according to how people describe it. But then also, it's not only the fact that you can make a whole bunch of quote-unquote Rumsfeld-esque shock and awe, it's, it's, it's Iran's terror network that will be able to haunt you and, and badger you for decades to come. That's another thing. But then, yeah, yeah, it doesn't stop. But then also with Obama, when you look at the Iran deal, it, it's it's some 160 plus pages. And it's pretty much a very technical document that deals with, you know, the number of centrifuges and all this other stuff. But the number one job is to ensure that, that Iran does not make a nuclear weapon and and his thinking was listen all these regional grievances that you have and all this drama it's nothing that i can really do about it i just don't want you all to acquire nukes because if we do have to fight you the only thing that i care about is that it's a conventional war and we don't have to have any one-on-one nu nu nuclear um nuclear conflict and i think that people try to make it more than that what really makes me angry is why do we not why why do we have a zero tolerance policy for Iran, but we don't have that same policy for Saudi Arabia? Okay, so yeah, that's a good transition, right? So, and and that's and, and you're exactly right. Any conflict with Iran, it, it's not going to be. I mean, Saddam broke even. <laughs> the Iran Iraq War, that it, it it's it's just <laughs> it's not going to end well. It, it's it, you're not going to win. Um, now, when you talk about Saudi, okay, now, the thing is that some people will tell you, and, and I served there. I was there three and a half years, know the region well, served with the security services. I mean, work with them, okay, to disrupt terror plots and things like that. And the thing that you have with Saudi is, okay, meet it 9-11. Was it 15 of the 19 hijackers? Okay. Saudi citizens, I think they say. So you had their citizens versus the state actually literally backing those terror networks. Okay. Now, the issue comes to play. President Bush made the decision to basically say, we're moving forward. Did he slam the Saudis? No. They kind of got them out of the country, right? You know, some FBI agents will tell you, they're like, well, you let these Saudis leave, <laughs> you know, after the biggest, you know, the big, at the biggest crime scene we've ever had in the country, right? Until COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, so, 
<laughs> you know, well, hey, hey, keeping it real, perspective. We'll get to that. But so we let them go. You know, we didn't drop that hammer, didn't make those threats. We made threats to Pakistan and the Taliban, basically saying, you know, we told them, what is it, Bashar, if you're with us, President Bush said, you're with us or you're against us. Don't play with us. We told the Taliban, turn them over, talking about Osama and Al-Qaeda. If not, we're coming for you, which we did. Now, we never, we never threw that hammer at Saudi because we got so many relationships with Saudi. One of the first things that tripped me out when I got to Saudi, right? Because I'm going to tell you straight up, I didn't really want to go there, <laughs> you know, because it was like I heard they're real hard to deal with. And I'm not talking about individual Saudis, but as a service, I'd heard a lot of stories, right? Man, I get out there. And I'm coming from the airport, and the first thing I see is, man, there are a whole lot of chandelier stores. And then I'm looking at the highways. I'm like, this is like America. As a friend of mine, one of my best friends from there says, Saudi Arabia is a copy-paste of America without the freedom. <laughs> you know, you're talking about back to all the Aramco. You know, I'm meeting kids that grew up in Houston speaking perfect English, you know, all these ties between America and Saudi that senior policymakers, business people, and others that were like, we can't quit you, baby, and we ain't going to quit you, <laughs> but you need, to, you need to get your shit together. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And to be honest with you, Saudi, immediately after 9-11, you know, it took about four years to kind of get them to start more of a crackdown against even their domestic al-Qaeda operatives because they were trying to put their head in the sand, no pun intended, um, because they didn't want to deal with it. You know, they're thinking, oh, shit, oh, hey, man, these guys lead a country. It ain't our business. Oh, Osama's not even our citizen anymore. So what you want from me, Terrell? You know, but it's like, dude, you've got a responsibility to kind of stop this and help us stop these people. And they actually started doing that. You know, Mohammed bin Naif, a former, was Crown Prince, still MBS, <laughs> you know, locked him up or house arrest or whatever he's on right now, and others. So the Saudis were getting that pass, also investments. You know, Terrell, let's look at the reality. And I've thought about this. The, the Saudis turned, the Saudi government, and let's say Crown Prince, et cetera, they turned a Ritz Carlton into a jail, brother. <laughs> What country could get away with screwing over the Ritz Carlton brand like that except Saudi? Well, why? Because Saudi obviously has spent a lot of money in the luxury brand business. They come into the club and they buy it, they're buying the five hundred thousand dollar bottle of champagne that don't exist. Saudis are spending money. And this is a capitalist world for good or bad. And they get a pass. Where if anybody else did it, I mean, I think about it every day. I'm like, what brand? And you haven't heard Rich Carlton like say anything or say, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna take that brand out of Saudi. Nope, you didn't hear that. Now you had other brands like, okay, we're gonna stay away after Jamal Khashoggi was killed. Okay, we're gonna kind of stay away from that, you know, because they don't took it too far. So it's this it's this kind of nexus of the fact is, it's selective enforcement of morals. 
and norms. <laughs> and that's what's been happening for years. And the Iranians were going to kill the Saudi ambassador in D.C. This has been reported in the press. I remember when it happened, you're like thinking, oh, this is BS. And then you find out, oh, no, it ain't. Because they don't care. The Iranians decided, I'm going to punk the Saudis. I'm going to do, you know what? They had a Ramco. They, you know, it was a cyber attack. Then later, it was probably them. What was it? I don't know if it was last year or in the last couple of years, struck the facilities. Now, the Saudis say to Americans, you guys should help us. And I'm like, man, man, that's your business. <laughs> y'all need to sit. If y'all sit missiles to hit Iran right now because of the stuff they've done to you, I'd be like, okay, that's your business. But America can't just all of a sudden jump in in every conflict and start saying, well, we need to bomb you guys because they hit you. We need to hit them. It's like we get in that game, you know, there's no, they're not NATO. Saudi is not in NATO, okay? You know. Yeah, but and, they still in the co-op, though. I mean, because the, so like the way we breaking this down, man, like, because ultimately – they in the, I mean, it, it is the co-op when you think about it. I mean, America, America and Saudi, they in the co-op together. They may not be they NATO, are. but it's they really a co-op. Are, right. But we act like we ain't in the co-op. I, and it's, and, but, but even Trump, I will say, because I saw Saudi commentators and others, some of the Twitter personalities, they were like, you could tell, they were throwing shade that we didn't send missiles, you know, you know, after, you know, Aramco was struck by, you know, these cruise missiles and drones. They're like thinking, why didn't you, you know, Trump, you, you know, we were at the orb, we supporting you, and you left us out in the street. Well, because Trump, don't, Trump didn't necessarily want to get into an open conflict with Iran either. With the rest of the time we got, brother, man, I want to go into some domestic terrorism. And so I want to read this report. By the, um, the, uh, by the Center for Strategic and International Studies that found that white supremacist groups have carried out a majority of terrorist plots and attacks in 2000. The report found that white supremacist groups were responsible for 41 of 61 terrorist plots and attacks in the first eight months this year, or 67%. The findings come about two weeks after an annual assessment by the Department of Homeland Security that warned that violent white supremacy was the most persistent and lethal threat to the homeland and that white supremacists were the most deadly among domestic terrorists in recent years. But here's the thing, though. When I see 70 plus million people voting for Trump, what, what this tells me, particularly these campaigns, Democrats were banking on Trump's poor response to COVID and even the Republicans lack of supporting people with stimulus money as an, uh, as an effective way to poke holes in the legitimacy of their party. But what we saw was that more people actually showed up to the polls in support of that. And so what Democrats were trying to create as a message, as a counterattack, didn't work. And so what... What what do you think? Because you deal with different kinds of groups, you know, ethnic groups and backgrounds when you're when you're working from country to country in the Middle East. How would you assess uh, America's racial dynamics as a case officer? Okay, I'd say this. A few years ago, I would have said, okay, we're getting there. 
Okay, we're, we're, we might get there. I think a lot of us during Obama, I wouldn't say post-racial America. I thought all I always thought that was crazy. But during the kind of second term, you started the whole birther movement, the whole you you started seeing people just be more visibly racist than they were in places you didn't even expect. I'm like, you don't have black people. What do you I mean, I would meet people. I would meet people that would talk about Sharia law from like upstate, somewhere in Pennsylvania, rural Pennsylvania. You ain't got Muslims there. All y'all is white people. What are you talking about? And it's like, and then where are you getting this from? And it's like, and then the messaging is the same. You go to Arizona, you hear. You go to part of California. You go, you go all over the country and you're like, wow, this is being propagated, you know, by people. And a lot of it is folks from here, not Russian propaganda or anything. This is, they're, they're taking a message and they're saying, I'm going to get benefit, whether that's grift, whether that's real grievance or no grievance. And it's almost like everybody's picking their tribe and they're going to pick their side and they ain't backing down off of it. It's one of those things. I think I told you in the article I did with you, I think the first time we talked, it was, you know, I was talking about America had an IQ test and fail. <laughs> I still stand America had a what now? Repeat that. America had an IQ test and fail. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it looks like we, we kind of, we, we didn't fail, but I don't know. Because the fact is, if we think that all of a sudden that 70 million is going to go away, disappear, when they march and say we will not be erased, and if you think that's going to happen, you're crazy. I think the line was, Jews will not replace us. Right, absolutely. The Soros stuff, all these various forms of, you know, people equating Black Lives Matter to the Klan. I'm like, look at this. I'm like, you, I you what? I mean, <laughs> they don't even have, you know, they don't have traditional leadership. What, what's wrong with you guys? You know, so it's, I look at, as a case officer, I say America's, America has had fissures all the time. We've always had them. They are becoming exponentially worse. And I wonder, you know, do I need to prep my mom for us to get on a bailout plan to get the F out of here? You know, I mean, you you meet black folk, I'm sure, in some of the travel spaces, they're like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to move to Ghana. I'm going to Japan. <laughs> I was like, you know, is it going to get so crazy? There's certain places where you're like, I can't really live. I can't get married or I can't have the lifestyle I need to have because of, you know, certain people's political beliefs being enforced, you know, on everybody. And you're like, what are we going to be? You know? Absolutely. Absolutely, man. Listen, another question I got for you is, um, let's talk about this kidnapping attempt uh, of the Michigan governor, uh, Gretchen Whitmer. So, uh, you know, as you know, uh, more than a dozen white men plan to kidnap uh, the Michigan governor at her vacation home, as well as kidnap the Michigan attorney general, Dana Nessel. According to Channel 4, News Detroit, members of the group had a a plan in which basically they were going to storm the Capitol with 200 men, take hostages, execute, quote unquote, tyrants and have it televised. And the plan was to take roughly one week. And some of the members were quoted as saying no one is going to come out alive. And so there was another plan, a plan B, 
that was less complicated and the group would storm the Capitol, uh, Michigan State Capitol, while the legislature was in session, locked the doors, burned the Capitol to the ground. And one associate allegedly attempted to take selfies to document entrances and exits at the Capitol at a recent rally. So here's the thing, man. This is fucking bonkers. A plot by more than a dozen men, white men, to kidnap the Michigan governor. I just think that if this were a bunch of black men that were connected even just slightly to the BLM movement, even if they had attended, uh, like photos of them were at a rally or something yeah, like that. Maybe. Politicians from, yeah, bo both politicians from both sides would be blaming the Black Lives Matter movement and defund the police movement, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think the thing about that plot, now you'll get some arguments where people say, hey, it was totally aspirational. They couldn't have maybe done it. But let, let's look at it real. At the end of the day, I chased and stopped people that were trying to do this overseas. They, I mean, the plan and the, what they wanted to do, that was like stuff that Al-Qaeda wanted to do. And we stopped those people. We rendered that, Al-Qaeda ain't what it used to be. I don't care what nobody says. They ain't what they used to be. You know, we were able to disrupt those plots. And I'm going to tell you, we went with a fine-tooth comb to make sure we cleaned up every operative, jail, prison, whatever, whatever means to make sure they weren't gonna be able to continue to do harm. You know, now the thing is, you know, is a bureau taking that same kind of effort as the state police? We don't know, we hope they are, but because they infiltrated and they got inside of it, so props to them. But the thing is, what about the group that's smarter next time? Because you gotta remember, discovery, a lot of information is going to come out. They're going to see how they got infiltrated. Are they going to stop? Are they going to continue? Because the radicalization, Terrell, that's going on in America, it's getting worse among, <laughs> among, I mean, you see some of these spaces and you're like, wait a minute, they got an Asian guy in there. Because remember, you always say, you ain't going to be white to support white supremacy. <laughs> Absolutely. The Proud Boys having a big falling out because I think one of their guys is a Latino guy, but he decided he wanted to be, I think he's a leader in the Proud Boys. It's a hot mess, but just because they're a hot mess doesn't mean they're dangerous. I've seen, I've seen real housewives of terrorist groups. I mean, I've seen drama inside these groups. I have people in there and they're telling you and you're like, this is drama, but they're still dangerous and we got to stop them. Mm -hmm. And so just right. because because I always tell people, they only got to get lucky one, one or two times, and you're going to pay the price. We not learned it because also the thing to think about, and I always tell people this, in places, you might knock out one cell, but did you knock out the other cell? You know, many times, you know, in Kenya, 97, I think they disrupted a plot, but it was all part of the same plot. They disrupted the 97 move, but they didn't knock out the 98 move. Because so many of these folks is dedicated to getting this done. They believe that they're going their way of life. And when people start bringing in race and they think genocide is going to happen against them, they've got that programming in them. And man, they ain't going to stop until you stop them. Either jail, some serious counter radicalization, 
things that we only focused on Muslims about, somebody needs to do it with them. I was getting ready to say, do we need do we need a counter radicalization of white people in America? Yeah, I mean it's getting to that, ain't it? <laughs> I, I I would say so. I, I mean it's getting to that point because you got some. I mean I got boys. They're special forces, Delta, all these high tier top tier organizations. We work together, friends, and they're like, man, I don't know what the hell is wrong with some of my kin folks. So these jokers on some crazy stuff. He was like, I'm wondering, do I have? You know, am I gonna have to call the police on my own relatives? And you know, because they're like this. I mean, people, there are white folks that you've seen with this kind of drawing, you know, this line in the sand of they don't even talk to other family members. And I hear them because you know, people I'm one of those guys people like to talk to, and so they tell me they draw man. I'm like, boy, that's some mess. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, that's not that's not having a black Republican in the family or, you know, having somebody in the nation versus somebody who believes in Pan-African revolution or, you know, this is some stuff where you like worried, is this guy going to get his guns and just either go to the cabin and leave everybody alone or is he going to go and shoot up some people? Because he's mad. And, you know, and, and, you know, Trump is stirring it up or it's somebody else stirring it up or another politician is stirring it up. So, I mean, these are, Man, they gotta look at themselves. And and the same effort that we did and the millions and billions we spent to and telling countries, Saudis used to tell us all the time, because they had a big counter-radicalization program, right? They would say, we can kind of help you with it because the radicalization, whether it's based on religion, whether it's based on ethnic nationalism, white supremacy, whatever, there's a lot of similarities with. But you've got to do something with it. If not, you're going to have a lot of dead people. Sooner or later, you're going to have bodies on the street. And is that where yes, you want? Yeah. And civil Absolutely. war, civil war is something I've, we've seen countries fall apart. I remember Yemen. I was in Saudi when Yemen fell apart. Syria fell apart. And it's like, if we think that can't happen to us, we, you know, you're crazy. Because I keep hearing you know, they start saying, uh, you know, all these different, I don't know if you saw this snippet. People saying, I'm not a radical, I believe, but Trump shouldn't lose. And I'm like, he lost, but no, he shouldn't lose. And these people are sincere in their belief. They are sincere in their belief. And, man, that sincerity is real to them. And what's that going to make them do? And that is where intervention's got to happen. I mean, I mean, candidly, these preachers need to get on white pastors and stuff. Y'all talk to your people because <laughs> we ask Muslims to do it. <laughs> you know, we ask others to do it. I can't. We got to work on this. Yeah, but the problem though is that yeah, the, the 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 problem with that though is the white pastors are in on it and they're part of the radicalization, so they're not going to do it account right. So, but so here's you know one thing I want to ask you, man, is how does all of your your, your just your experience as a black man inform? how you carry out your job during the time you were in the, the CIA and what type of perspective or advantage you feel they gave you when you were working with your counterparts abroad? Okay, I'll say this. Um, uh, I, I was always authentically me. Um, I never tried to say, oh, well, let me go do something. I'm not going to be anybody other than Joanne Cook. And I'm a black man. That's obvious. You see me. Uh, you know, and that authenticity in the Arab world, 
I got along great. <laughs> they trusted me. They actually would confide, and, and this was something that even the agency acknowledged several times. Seniors would say, you know, man, you're able to get stuff out of them about some of our Arab counterparts. They won't tell me. Well, because it's a black man, and they're thinking, man, I've been under scrutiny all my life. <laughs> this black man ain't going to judge me. You know, this black person, if they're in this organization, they must be serious. They also care. And it, it was one of those things where it was a total asset to me, um, being a black man in that organization. I'm going to be candid about the CIA. The CIA gave me a lot of responsibility. Some days I still wonder why you, they let me do all the stuff I did, you know, <laughs> because I, I guess as a friend told me, you were good at your job. You made the managers look good and you did it. You know, you work closely, closely with the lawyers. <laughs> you, you didn't go out there rogue, and, but you got the job done and you had a heart about it. Cause I mean, I'm one of these people, I can go after a bad guy, but I'm not going to disrespect I don't want to slap them. I'm not, I stayed away from that torture bullshit. I hate it. I don't want no part. And when I was inside, stayed the hell away from that. Cause I'm like, I didn't, I didn't get raised to be black to join the CIA to go to jail. Cause you just don't know how things go work out. And so. Yeah. Waterboard and all that other jazz, you, you know, other that. people may have done but yeah. something when you, because honestly, there are people, KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, others, those people should have been tried and dealt with however we were going to deal with them. But now it's contaminated. You know, I don't know what you're going to have. And are you going to, the families don't have closure. A lot of people, and it's just another open wound in the history of America who has a history of having open wounds from Vietnam to our struggle here as black people in America, Native American struggle, you know, Korea, all, you know, never, Vietnam, you know, never getting that resolution. White people got a lot of stuff, things that they've been done wrong, you know, maybe by the government, whatever, they don't have a resolution. And all that stuff leaves wounds. And there are consequences to those wounds. But, you know, I think being raised as I was, understanding my own history, you know, I'm a guy that was, you know, growing up, my grandfather was in the Marcus Garvey movie. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, he was giving me this perspective of, Hey, man, we we don't hate nobody, but we want to be left alone. I mean, that's why I grew up with the shotgun. You know, so it was like, what, leave us alone? Because we just want to live our lives, you know, not have a bunch of drama. And then after a while, I always knew I was going to be in the agency for maybe 10, 15 years or so, and then be done with it. Because I knew it wasn't, I wasn't just going to stay there. Because I'm like, that's a, you know, I think Christian tradition, you say, this is a season of our lives. And that was a season. And when I was done with it, I was done with it. I, I've still got the friendships. Now, the weird thing, man, is you've got my, some of my friends overseas are people that a regular person in Saudi would be scared of my friends because they're part, they're general and state security. <laughs> you know, and I had to get that in my head to understand that, hey, you know, most people are scared of those folks. But then also, I can see that perspective as somebody that you guys don't understand what, what it looks like when institutions turn against the people. And I think what a lot of people have seen in the Trump administration is that fear that these institutions are just going to go off the rails 
and turn against the people. Everybody's nervous, or are the institutions going to turn against the president? The president's worried about the institutions turning against him. People, you know, the people are worried about is the FBI going to go against me? I mean, it's so much chaos that we've seen. We have to say, can we balance out and even try to move forward? And that's something I, I'm still, it's still up in the air, man. It's 50 50 for me. Uh, I feel you, brother. Yeah, I feel you, brother. Um, one more thing I wanted to ask you directly. When you were in the agency when Obama won the presidency, what is a transition from one president to the other supposed to look like? Well, <laughs> uh, you you are instantly getting ready to brief and prepare for a new director in many cases <laughs> and to prepare for um, a new administration, a new National Security Council. You're preparing briefing documents on, you know, your operations, what you're doing in country X. You're basically, you're turning over. It's a turnover. In my old business, if I'm leaving the country, my asset, you know, I got to turn them over to somebody else. And a proper turnover is critical, <laughs> you know, because what's his name? <laughs> you know, how much money does he make? You know, these kind of things are important. Does he have, is there anything I need to know about? You know, because if not, I can fool around and mess this up and get somebody, get this guy killed or get this lady killed if I don't do the turnover properly. So for me, when I see this current drama that we have, because there's a lot of bad stuff going in on, on the secret side of the world that you don't know about that are of concern that presidents, incoming presidents, incoming administration officials should know about. And if you mess that up, try to hide it, try to play some kind of game, you're putting them behind the eight ball, okay? And so when you see this current state, at this point, we should have already, you should have a, you should start, the transition team should be looking at who they're gonna pick for cabinet posts. They should be getting certain briefings from the intelligence community, understanding here's something you really have to pay attention to. You know, it's kind of like what Obama did allegedly. You know, Obama, and I don't think it was an alleged thing, he actually did it, you know, saying, hey, you need to be concerned about this, 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 and this, and fire Mike Flynn. You know, allegedly, <laughs> you know, so the story goes, you know, because and don't watch out for Flynn, he's a problem. I mean. That's kind of what's supposed to happen. And when that doesn't happen, you have a, you're also putting pressure on, imagine the agency, FBI, other organizations, they're going to have to scramble to get to let Biden, you know, president-elect know what's going on when they can. Because right now they may be being stopped. You know, so it's going to be a mad rush. And what that's going to cause is this. You're going to have all these briefings, they're backed up. That's going to cause like a six-month slowdown, if not eight, nine. <laughs> that could cause a slowdown in certain things that maybe need to happen or not need to happen because he didn't get the briefing or hadn't got the brief until he gets this briefing January. But then he's like, I got inauguration. I got time to deal with this. So that briefing may be in April. And you're like, well, this is an important issue. This is some serious national security consequences. Is anybody going to blow up? Well, no, not right now, but uh, hey, okay, I'll get to it when I get to it. 
because <laughs> it's going to be madness. You know, so that's the thing. You're 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 behind the clock, and let's remember these are politicians who are dealing with a whole lot of other baggage that's coming in because of the prior administration. So, and constituencies and other things that they're going to have to deal with. This is just going to be whoever's on that. And I've seen some of the names on the transition team. They got to hit the ground running. To be honest with you, all that celebration we did with Obama and the inaugural balls and all that, man, F all that. I mean, we got Corona. So, man, ain't no time for the club on this one, buddy. Y'all got to work. I mean, as normal, bro. As normal. It's what, and I will, I will be honest. And I don't care what nobody like because I got to be joyous. We always say this. When black people get involved, say, man, they give it to us when it's the worst time. Man. You know, it's like, you know, you sit in a hair and it's like, Hey, sis, you know, I mean, we, you go out to work, it's going to be, I mean, you know, most of the time you say, okay, is she going to be really that active? She ain't going to have no choice, bro. This is going to be her, both of them, they're going to have to be working their backsides off because of this situation. There's just no, there's just no, no way around. It's going to be rough and they got to have a solid team they pick. And that's, that's going to be another thing and getting them confirmed then. It's it's gonna be it's gonna be rough, man. They're gonna have to end the domestic situation, pandemic situation, man. This this is this looks very ugly, just in general. Uh, I, I mean, God bless. Them. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Black Diplomats. We appreciate the support. Please go to Apple iTunes, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is and rate us with a five-star review and donate to our Patreon where you can find us under Black Diplomats Podcast and donate to our show. We're eager to grow the podcast and give you even more episodes, but we need your support. So... I want to give a big thank you to our 11 Patreons. Suni Rucker Chang, Sarah Casey, Elijah Below, Garrett Booz, Iwi Drew, Catherine Killebrew, Catherine Yamalyanov, Jerwayne D. Cook, Mark Lacey, Natty Linares, and Ashante Galar. Thank you for listening. I'm Terrell Starr, signing off.